Good morning. Abraham and Sarah were migrants their whole lives. In fact, the only plot of ground that Abraham ever owned was a plot that he purchased to bury Sarah. God called them out of Ur, and they trekked to Canaan. But a famine came, and they headed next for Egypt. The border they had to cross in order to enter into Egypt was a river. The river provided a green belt of growing things, and there were always hungry people trying to get in. As they approached Egypt, Abraham tells Sarah, when we get to the border, tell them you're my sister. These are the ancestors of our faith and of other faiths. They're willing to lie to get across the border to feed their family. Desperate people do desperate things. This story, and also my featuring of biblical narratives and themes in this sermon, are pulled almost directly from Dr. Danny Carroll's engaging presentation to the Delegate Assembly on Tuesday at the Mennonite Convention in Phoenix. He's written a book called Christians at the Border, Immigration, the Church, and the Bible. Now, Danny himself grew up in a family that spans borders. His mother is Guatemalan, and his father is from the U.S., and he has lived significant parts of his life in each country and has also worked in both. Have you thought of the Abraham and Sarah story as an immigrant story? Joseph. Joseph's brothers sell him, and he's trafficked into Egypt. He experiences a whole range of difficulties, but eventually reaches the number two position to Pharaoh. At this point, he's totally integrated into Egyptian society. He has married an Egyptian woman. He speaks the language. He's made up in the elaborate headdress and the facial mask of an Egyptian man of his stature. And this is probably why his brothers didn't recognize him when they came to Egypt to ask for food. But he names his two children Hebrew names. He hasn't forgotten his culture. He also hasn't forgotten his language. When his brothers come in to ask for food, he knows what they're saying even before the translator translates. And if you remember, he steps behind the screen and he weeps. Being fluent in two languages, able to bridge two worlds, is a gift, not a threat. Have you ever thought of Joseph's as an immigrant story? Migration and immigration is the story of labor, people looking for work and people looking for workers, says Danny Carroll. Let's talk a bit about Ruth. Ruth returns with Naomi to Bethlehem, which is Naomi's home, not Ruth's home. Boaz asks the reapers who are working alongside Ruth in the field, Ruth is gleaning there, reaping. Who's that, Boaz says. Oh, that's the Moabitess, the reapers respond. Now, why does Boaz notice her? She stands out. She looks different. She's probably dressed differently. She's a foreigner. The reapers don't even know her name. She's essentially that woman from Moab. Moab. But they say, wow, she's a hard worker. We want your labor, but we don't want you, is a common attitude towards immigrants. Have you ever thought of Ruth as an immigrant story? As Marlon mentioned, I attended the Mennonite Church USA Biennial Convention in Phoenix as your delegate. 
Now, when we scheduled today's sermon, Harley Cooker, your other delegate, and I were planning to share the time together. Unfortunately, Harley was not able to go to the convention, so you're stuck with me. In addition to myself and the youth group, a number of other people were present in Phoenix. And so feel free to talk to Sue and Marlon Groff, or Jesus Cruz, or Larry Zook, and I may have missed someone else uh, who was present from our fellowship. So how did immigration become the central organizing topic for this year's convention in Phoenix? Was it simply because we were meeting in Phoenix? Yes and no. Had the run-up to Phoenix been the usual ho-hum planning, I expect there would have been a few seminars focused on immigration. Maybe one featured speaker during worship that really honed in on the topic. Generally, we would, I would expect we would just give a nod to the hot topic in the local context and go on with whatever else we wanted to focus on. But there's a backstory, and as you probably know, Arizona has been infamously blazing the way in discriminatory and restrictive state legislation designed to punish anyone who comes into their state without proper documentation. In reality, it uses racial profiling to single out people with brown skin for suspicion, intimidation, detention, or even deportation. Anyone who looks like they might be Latina or Latino is a target. So MCUSA had chosen Phoenix and made a down payment on the convention facility before these discriminatory laws were passed. When the laws were passed, many voices called for the convention to be moved to another state, including Iglesia Menonita Hispana, the Association of Hispanic Congregations that's part of MCUSA. In fact, they made an official request, consider moving, please move the convention. There was a period of processing and discernment and the denomination's response was, no, I don't think so. We're going to hold the convention in Phoenix, but we'll talk a lot about immigration. How about that? Actually, I don't think how about that was in there. The decision had been made. You may recall Pastor Don noting in a sermon some months back that moments of conflict are precisely the moments that open up opportunities for exciting transformation. Taking a step into the unknown can lead to a new, healthier way of being. The denomination, I feel, had an awesome opportunity to live the talk and supremely value the voices of our members of color, sacrificing for the sake of accompaniment. Mennonite Church USA turned down that opportunity, and many church members chose to stay away from the convention because of real personal risk or out of conscience in solidarity with those who would face real personal risk did they choose to attend. During community lifetime, Valentina Satvedi will be reflecting on her experience of that discernment process. So I went to Phoenix with a certain sadness in my heart, that the body gathered would be poorer, missing the rich gifts of many people not able or wanting to attend. At the same time, I committed to being fully present and representing you as best I could. The week turned out to be really wonderful. There were top-notch speakers who didn't mince words. They laid out real challenges. Immigration and related topics were ever-present for saturated learning times that featured stories and testimony and great preaching. Some took trips to or over the border. Extended seminars called learning experiences offered opportunities within the convention center to engage immigration and other key topics. Frankly, I was surprised. It was a really wonderful week. 
I'll tell you a little bit about the delegate sessions, some of the resolutions that we considered in past. The 600 plus delegates voted on three resolutions during the week. We passed a resolution on creation care, and we broadly affirmed the importance of practical actions in caring for God's creation. Part of the res resolution stated that care for God's creation is, quote, an essential part of the good news of Jesus Christ, unquote. And as you might guess, uh, that raised significant questions and quite a bit of conversation. But as I said, the resolution passed. We passed a resolution called Protecting and Nurturing Our Children and Youth. And this acknowledges abuse and neglect in our congregations and calls churches to put into place proactive policies that protect children in church. And we've recently done that, so we're well aware of the importance of that. And we reviewed and affirmed the 2003 Statement on Immigration that the church had put out, suggesting updates. Now, after a whole string of people had come to the microphone suggesting changes, one delegate wisely noted that it seemed inappropriate to vote on a final version of the resolution when so many people more directly affected on a daily basis by immigration policy were not present with us. So the resolution will go through several more process steps, including allowing further input from Iglesia Menonita Hispana and other groups before it's finally adopted. During our last 15 minutes of delegate time together on Friday evening, unexpectedly, the floor was opened for comment on anything at all we wanted to bring to the assembly. I was a little shocked by this, and I tend to like to prepare before I speak, so I was, my heart was thumping and I was scrolling things down. But I was able to pass along the concern that Barry Friesen requested be raised about paying attention to the shift in how our country wages war, ongoing war on our behalf that flies under the radar, so to speak, in a variety of ways. And after the sermon, I'll place somewhere in the back um, the agenda that, that delegates had, the executive board report that we had ahead of time, copies of these resolutions we looked at. So if you want to look through the papers, um, you're welcome to. But back to the scriptures. Again, from Dr. Danny Carroll's presentation. The Old Testament has a lot of laws dealing with immigration. In fact, the law of Israel has more laws on immigrants than any law code we know of from the ancient world. Immigrants were vulnerable in the ancient world um, especially in two ways. First, there's no welfare, so people had to depend on their extended family to pull them through tough times. And immigrants did not have usually extended family with them. Second, in an agrarian society, land was inherited and immigrants were not able to inherit land, so they depended on Israelites for work. Israelites were commanded to treat immigrants fairly in law cases decided at the gates of the city to pay them fairly and on time, to leave some of the harvest for those vulnerable ones to pick up, as you heard in the piece from Deuteronomy that Tina just read. The law also allowed immigrants to take part in the religious feasts of Israel, offering access to the faith. God cares deeply about those who migrate. You find it in the New Testament as well. First Peter 2.11 offers migration as a central metaphor for what it means to be a Christian. We are aliens and exiles, it says. The more we understand about immigration, the more we understand about the Christian faith and God, says Danny. The more we understand about immigration, the more we understand about the Christian faith and about God. That statement struck me. 
Now, there are a variety of ways of understanding the image of God that each of us carries. And understanding the image of God as recognizing that every human being has infinite potential, talents, and giftedness that they can bring to a host country flips the immigration discussion. The discussion about legislation changes from one about punitive results to a positive funneling of potential for the common good of the nation. Feels really different, doesn't it? Whoa, 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 what about Romans 13? Be subject to the governing authorities, it says. They have been established by God. This often comes up when Christians have conversations about immigration and legislation. Danny says, well, Romans is, oh, about 1,200 pages into the Bible. So let those first 1,200 pages help us read Romans 13. And don't forget to take a close look at Romans 12. Don't let the world conform you to its way of thinking. Be at peace with all people as far as it depends on you. And if your enemy is hungry, feed them. If your enemy is thirsty, give them something to drink. Even if you think immigrants are enemies of the state, Danny says, you are beyond excuse. Powerful words, all of them. I really appreciated what he brought to the delegate assembly. His presentation is online through the live stream website, and I really encourage you, if you're interested, to check it out. A specific question raised during our prep time for going to Phoenix was whether our congregation's participation is useful and why. I kept that going through the back of my head as I experienced the week, and I came away leaning towards yes, definitely. It's important that we lend our voices and energy to helping shape where we're headed together as a denomination. Now, if that's all we wanted to do, sort of feed our voices into some giant pot for Urban Stutzman to stir, electronic communications from a distance would work just fine. But being together makes ways for new connections, friendships, and a different kind of learning that can change both the broader church and us. The Holy Spirit, I noticed, seems to favor real gatherings of people in the flesh to offer both grace and prophetic words. Here are two examples. Illinois Mennonite Conference created a poster that lists the surnames of every member of their conference and in large letters states, all good Mennonite names. Chuck Neufeld, who is the conference minister, handed out slips of paper to each delegate with a short listing of some of those names. We read them together, aloud, in a cacophony of affirmation and celebration at the increasing diversity of our communion. For days after this, this experience was referenced by various speakers as having been an important moment of welcome for them. Being together, and together recognizing a past that has marginalized newcomers, then verbally affirming that all in our fellowship bear good Mennonite names was an active moment of grace and learning, different from reading a news article about Illinois Mennonite Conference's initiative, which I had done in the past. As the first delegate session began on our last day together, about 60 members of the Pink Menno movement wearing Pepto-Bismol pink came and stood quietly among the delegates, delegate tables some held signs, some held large photos of gay, lesbian, bisexual, and transgender people who are in the church, but are unable to share their considerable gifts fully 
because of discrimination in the form of official exclusionary policy. Some delegates around the tables began standing in solidarity with Pink Minnow. Delegates were clustered around tables, and four of us at our table of seven ended up standing. After about 20 minutes of the regular agenda going on, Dick Thomas, the moderator, stopped, acknowledged the Pink Minnow presence, and invited Katie Hostetler to read the group's statement, calling for full inclusion. After she was finished reading, Dick named the pain that LGBTQ people have experienced from the church and called for a time of silent reflection. This time lasted not the usual cursory 20 seconds or so, but rather for several minutes. The entire interaction was done with such grace and respect from all sides that it was clear the spirit was at work in amazing ways. Maybe this could have happened virtually, but I doubt it. And now a closing word that switches gears a little bit, but not too much. As people in the various communities I journey in have tried to come to terms with the Trevon Martin case ruling last week and what it says about our nation and the state of oppression here, I found Hannah Heinzecker's synopsis of an article by Christina Cleveland particularly helpful. Hannah has a blog called Feminite, and Christina is a writer for Christianity Today. Quote, Christina highlights three things that privileged Christians tend need to learn from the Trevon Martin case. One, there are multiple realities in America. Two, it's time for privileged people to listen and learn. And three, it's time for privileged people to practice solidarity. I believe that the Mennonite Church USA Week in Phoenix laid the groundwork for privileged Mennonites to recognize that there are multiple realities in the US and that it's time for privileged people to listen and learn and practice solidarity in the grid of intersecting oppressions we notice, ignore, and perpetrate, immigration and immigration policy being one of those. The voice of God and the stories of God's people Call us to nothing less. Amen.